Welcome back to Witnesses to History, a podcast series brought to you by the Juno Beach Center. My name is Keegan Gingrich, and we are back with our fifth edition of this series with Farley Mowat's book and No Bird Sang. I'm really excited about today's episode, and it's probably going to be a little bit longer, similar to our last episode on George Burling, which I really enjoyed, and I hope you did too. We're kind of keeping up the... uh, the geographical area, let's say. Uh, we talked about Malta last time and we're talking about uh, Sicily and Operation Husky in Italy, which is going to be really exciting. Now, for many Canadians, mention of the name Farley Mowat is sure to pique the interest of most. Some Canadians might know Mowat as an environmentalist, a man whose writing and activism helped to change popular attitudes towards nature generally and wildlife such as wolves. His writing on the Canadian North specifically helped to draw much popular attention to occurrences in the region, which many might recall. For others, Moat is an important part of their childhood due to his prolific writing of books such as Lost in the Barrens, a book which had won a Governor General's Award in 1956. Perhaps Farley Moat can best be summed up by this passage in his obituary found in the Globe and Mail in, in 2014. Quote, Mr. Mowat was a trickster, a ferocious imp with a silver pen, an ardent environmentalist who opened up the idea of the North to curious Southerners, a public clown who hid his shyness behind flamboyant rum swinging and kilt flipping, and a passionate polemicist who blurred the lines between fiction and facts to dramatize his cause. Above all, he was a best-selling and prolific writer who kept generations of children and their parents spellbound by tales of adventures with wolves that were friendlier than people, whales in need of rescue, dogs who refused to cower, owls roosting in the rafters, and boats that wouldn't float. Mode is quoted as saying, I will take any liberty I want with the facts so long as I don't trespass on the truth. His controversial legacy finds its roots in his early days of writing, where many believe that he had lost all credibility due to his exaggeration of events, which he is alleged to not have witnessed, with some people arguing that he fabricated many of the stories and events in books such as People of the Deer in 1952 and Never Cry Wolf in 1963. While Moat has denied that he has falsified events in his works, he does accept the fact that many of the events he describes are exaggerations of the truth, boasting that they are indeed successful in drawing public attention to important issues. Most notably, People of the Deer was successful in garnering government attention to the state in which Inuit peoples were living. Here's another quote from him. I wanted the truth about what happened to those people to be revealed, he said in November 2009. I hope by revealing it, I would accomplish something in terms of our future behavior towards Native people, and perhaps for their survivors. The objective was legitimate and valid, but the process was not a process we like in our society, which operates on the basis of candid truth. I had been made aware of Farley Mowat's works a few years ago when in a fourth year undergraduate seminar when we read and discussed his 1958 work Grace Sees Under about the story of a salvage tug named Foundation Franklin. It is one of few books dedicated to the role of salvage tugs in the war and it really is a fascinating read. But what is most striking about that book is the writing style. Now, I think I gave my professor Roger Sardi and the rest of the class a good laugh more than a few times after having concluded reading the book. As I said, I felt like I had developed an emotional attachment to a tugboat. While I was certainly trying to be a bit of a comedian, I also genuinely felt remorse after concluding my reading as I felt though the Franklin had such an amazing story to tell. 
This is all to say that Farley Mowat's writing style is so unbelievably unique and powerful that it can take an inanimate heap of metal and wood and turn it into a romanticized story of perseverance. What a perfect segue into today's discussion on Farley Mowat's autobiography titled And No Bird Sang from 1979. Now, he does also list in the book that it's originally written in 1975, so there are some conflicting reports there, but we've got the late 1970s as our baseline. I consider myself so really lucky, you know. And many, many were doing their job, doing it for, for their country. The opportunity was there. I took it. You just couldn't do it all on your own. If we're not around to tell them, how are they going to know? Farley Moat was born on May 12, 1921 in Belleville, Ontario, but grew up in Richmond Hill. His father, Angus McGill Mowat, was a renowned Canadian librarian and a veteran of the Great War who notably served at Vimy Ridge as a part of the Canadian Military Engineers and the Canadian Expeditionary Force. His great-great-uncle was Sir Oliver Mowat, who served as Ontario's third premier for a period of 24 years, and his distant relative, John Mowat, was one of the founders of Queen's University. It is no surprise that with a family history such as this, Farley Mowat was likely destined for great things. During the 1930s, he wrote a slew of columns for local Saskatoon papers where his family had relocated. He began a degree at the University of Toronto in zoology. However, he never completed it, but retained a unique interest in wildlife and birds specifically. When the war broke out in 1939, Mowat was urged by his father to join the Canadian Army as he himself was returning to service as a major. Farley, however, had ambitions to join the Air Force, but was twice denied the opportunity. First due to his appearance as being much younger than he was, being called a peach-faced kid, and the second due to being four pounds underweight. These futile attempts led to his eventual submission to the facts, instead joining the Army with aid from his father's connections. Farley Mowat joined the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment, also known as the Hasty Peas, you might recall from our episode on Harry Fox in 1940, and was not placed on active service until halfway through 1941. Even after being designated as active, Farley was not yet to see action. Let me read for you his ruminations on page 9 and 10 of the book And No Bird Sang to give us a little bit of a background on Farley's feelings. Ten days before reaching the magic age of 20, I was dispatched to an officer's training camp for a qualification course, after which I was sent to Camp Borden, where in the hot summer wastelands of scrubby pines and sand dunes, I was introduced for the first time to relatively modern weapons and tactics. At summer's end, my promotion to full lieutenant was confirmed. However, I did not get the immediate overseas posting I had expected. Instead, I was seconded to the Borden training staff. Outraged, I had myself paraded before the commanding officer, a resurrected has-been from 1918, and demanded to be allowed to join a draft for England. He was unyielding. Quote, Not a chance, my lad. You're smart enough to be an instructor, but you're not ready to take the gaff with a fighting outfit. I'll tell you when you're ready. I put in a rotten winter, during which my faith in the army began to be clouded by the suspicion that part of it, at any rate, was run by a bunch of stupid old fogies. As a result, I began in the old army phrase to swing the lead a little bit. My father, who had his own sources of information, was duly apprised of my altered attitude and in mid-March wrote my mother. I have to have a fatherly talk with Farley, who has been getting somewhat in the wrong. 
He does not suffer fools gladly, something which in army life must be done, if not gladly, at least with tact. Once he matures enough to understand that, he should progress rapidly. He's been recommended for a staff course, but though he has made a name in all his courses, I cannot say I want him to get this one. He would eventually go overseas as a staff captain to some higher headquarters, but would thus lose the invaluable experience of having led men in action. I shared my mounting mood of dissatisfaction with other young subalterns, particularly Jerry Austin, who was then my closest friend. As I wrote glumly to my father, despondency and dismay fill all of us subalterns. We wonder what the hell was the use of joining up if they're going to keep us here in Canada forever. We've all got bad cases of boredomitis and swollen mess bills. It's got so bad that the last week Jerry and I decided to get rid of our commissions so we could get overseas as privates. Climbing into privates' uniforms, we went AWOL and hitched to Toronto for the weekend. But the idiots at headquarters just treated the whole thing as a high-spirited joke. Apparently, we can't even make them kick us out. But all things end. Early in July of 1942, several of us were finally posted for an overseas reinforcement draft, and I hastily scrawled a note to my parents. Thank heavens this is it. It's worth two years of waiting. A couple of months battle training with the regiment, and then, praise be, we'll get a show to try our talents on. Apart from you two, I don't in the least regret leaving Canada, even though there is the chance that I may not see it again. If we get a damn good lick in at the Hun, it'll be worth it. When Farley was eventually deployed overseas, he saw brief action in France as a member of the 3rd Infantry Brigade, but was recalled. By 1943, however, 2nd Lieutenant Farley Mowat was deployed to Italy as a part of Operation Husky during the Allied invasion of Sicily. In command of a rifle platoon, Mowat would take part in the landings in Sicily, which is where today's story begins. I'm going to take you through a couple of the similar themes we've kind of explored through the past few episodes, but a few new ones as well. And I think Farley Mowat's perspective is very interesting and Keep in mind throughout this that he does have a reputation of exaggerating a little bit, Um, and I'm sure that's definitely the case here, but the events are no less uh, remarkable, let's say, and I think we're going to really enjoy talking about today's, today's events. What I'm about to read takes place just after July 12th of 1943, following the uh, successful landings in Sicily, and we're going to read that for you here now. I'm going to start today with some of the descriptions of the locals, the troops, uh, what have you in Italy. Uh, He's talking about the Sicilians and the Italians at, at varying points here. But I found this really fascinating, specifically when we looked at George Burling in the last episode and how he described the Maltese, uh, the nature of the fighters, the fighter pilots and, and all of those things. And I find it really interesting how they kind of pivot on this. And Farley Mowat does so as well. And so I'm going to start with a quote on page 8182. He really detests the Italians and the Sicilians um, when he first arrives in Italy, but it's interesting to see how this changes later in the story. So I'm going to start with a quote here. This country is absolutely foul, dry as a bone, hot as hell during the day and icy cold at night. The whole place looks like the North Dakota Badlands. Towns are few and scruffy, always perched on hills like raven's nests, and the stink has been collected in them since year one. The civvies are dirt poor and look half-starved. The Aitai soldiers are crack troops, though. They crack every time we hit them. We've made fantastic progress, but may slow down a bit now, because the rumor is that Jerry is moving south to meet us, and he is a horse of another color. 
but not to worry, we'll light a rocket under his tail too. For the first time since leaving England, we folded up our ground sheets and took refuge in billets. Although hardly palatial, the bomb blasted and shell-shattered houses of Cachopignano, formerly known to us as Castro Pigface, on the north bank of the Berferno, at least offered some protection from the biting rain and snow squalls sweeping down from the white-sheathed mountains. Winter had come upon us with a vengeance. The rivers rose and washed away the pontoon bridges with which our engineers had spanned the Berferno, cutting us off from the rear areas. Winter clothing was slow in arriving and so we made do with whatever we could find. Doc supplied himself and me with short coats made out of army blankets by the local tailor, who charged four cans of bully beef or five pounds of flour for his labor. Despite the best efforts of the military authorities to stop it, we and the Italian civilians were soon living largely by mutual barter. Doc, who had become the unofficial I-section vittler, made daily expeditions far afield to exchange scarpe, boots, sugar, flour, bully, cigarettes, and old clothing for eggs, vegetables, vino, pasta, and the occasional scrawny chicken. The continuous foul weather was not what we had expected Italy to produce. I wrote a friend in England. I hasten to disillusion you about the climate, but it must be the worst of, in the whole bloody world. It either burns the balls off you in the summer or freezes them off in winter. In between, it rots them off with endless rains. The only time I'm comfortable is in my sleeping bag, wearing woolen battle dress and burrowed under half a dozen extra blankets. That's when we are in the billets, of course, such as the cellar I am now sharing with my Batman and sometimes a pig or two that wanders in out of the stormy night. For most of the time recently, we've been hiking in the mountains with only a cellophane gas cap to keep the elements at bay. The first travel agent I see back home with a poster of sunny Italy in his window is going to get a damn big rock right through the glass. Since the conditions under which we lived were much the same as those being endured by the natural inhabitants of Castropignano, shared adversity tended to dissolve whatever prejudices against the Italians still remained among us. These people, who had always lived on the hard edge of bare substance and who now had to be made virtually destitute by war, did not whine and beg or bemoan their fate, but carried on in a way that commanded respect and admiration from the Canadian soldati, many of whom had themselves known the acrid taste of poverty in Civvy Street. I wrote, I'm really amazed at the way the attitudes towards the eye ties have changed. Before the war, we were all taught to believe the Germans were such brave, clever, hardworking, God-fearing people, and the Italians were a bunch of cowardly, greasy good-for-nothings who waved their paws a lot, made plenty of noise, but wouldn't get their ass off the pot for love or money. Now it turns out they are the ones who are really the salt of the earth. The ordinary folk, that is. They have to work so hard to stay alive, it's a wonder they aren't sour as green lemons, but instead they're full of fun and laughter. They're also tough as hell and goddamn brave. A few weeks ago, one old geezer showed up at BHQ with a big wicker hamper. We thought it was full of eggs to trade for cigs, but it was actually full of detonators from German teller mines. The old character had watched the Jerry's lay about a hundred mines in a mountain road, and when they moved on, he lifted every mine, took out the detonators, and brought the lot to us to prove the road was safe for us to travel. Didn't ask for anything in return, either. In fact, he seemed to think it was a hell of a joke. But those things are often booby-trapped. He had more guts than me to tackle them on his own. Nearly all the men and most of the officers have found Aitai families of their own. We provide the grub and they find the vino and Mamma Mia does the cooking. And it's a ball. They ought to hate our guts nearly as much as Jerry's. 
But the only ones I wouldn't trust are the priests, lawyers, and the big shopkeepers, landowners, and such. They were mostly all fascists under Musso, and likely still are at heart. I doubt if many of the ordinary people ever were. We're going to now move to the next page on refugees. One day, late in November, a friend invited me to accompany him on a visit to 3rd Brigade, which was then laboriously scrabbling its way northward, through the mountains towards the headwaters of the Sangro River, where the Germans had anchored their so-called Bernard Line. As our jeep jounced all over the mountain trails, cratered, blown, and generally savaged by the demolition experts of 1st Paratroop Division, we encountered what for me was a new and singularly ugly aspect of war. Refugees making their painful way southward. Not before or since have I seen human beings who seemed so pitiable. We came upon them in little clots and clusters trudging along the roadsides through a veil of sleet. They were clad in unidentifiable scraps of black, rain-soaked clothing, and many walked barefoot in coagulating mud that was barely above the freezing point. Shapeless bundles slung over their shoulders, they plodded by with downcast eyes, mute and expressionless. We noted that there were no men of young or middle years among them. We were soon to find out why. At 3rd Brigade Headquarters, a grim West Nova Scotia Highlander lieutenant undertook to guide us deeper into an increasingly desolate landscape, and it was he who explained about the refugees. Before he pulled back, Jerry rounded up all the men and boys fit to work and took them to work on the fortifications along the Sangro. We've had a few escape into our lines. They tell us they get damn all to eat and are shot out of hand if they don't work hard enough or try to escape. They're kept at it till they drop. Then they're left lying in the rain and snow to live or die on their own. But that's not the half of it. Nearly every village on our front has been systematically destroyed. Jerry took everything the people had in the way of food and livestock, then turfed them out, burned what would burn, and blew everything else to hell. In one village, the bastards blew down the church with women and kids sheltering inside. They herded most of the rest of the people off toward our lines, warning them they'd be machine-gunned if they turned back. As you can see, we can't get wheeled transport up here, except for jeeps, so they have to walk about 10 miles to the rear, except for the sick or mothers with real young kids. We get them out on wheels somehow. Keep it under your hats, but our boys are so well brassed off about it, they aren't taking any prisoners. Not those first para bastards, anyhow. 3rd Brigade had just occupied one of the demolished villages, and we went forward to it on foot. The devastation was virtually total. Nothing remained except heaps of rubble, but despite the cold, the sickly stench of death proclaimed that not all the inhabitants had been able, or had been permitted, to escape. It was a revolting spectacle. At the time, the Allied command appeared to have been very little disturbed by this barbarism, it was said that the Germans were simply pursuing the scorched earth policy that they had developed in Russia, where everything might just conceivably have been of any use to the Russian army was destroyed, and the civilian population, rendered homeless and destitute, was deliberately converted into a living obstacle in the path of the advancing Russian troops. Presumably because our brass hats considered the scorched earth policy a legitimate military tactic, the atrocities inflicted on the Italian peasants in the Sangra Mountains rated no more than a few casual and non-condemnatory references even in the official military histories written after the war. In fact, those isolated little clusters of stone hovels clinging precariously to their inhospitable iris in a remote backwater were not, could not have been, of the slightest military significance to anyone. 
The truth of the matter was that the nearly a dozen hill villages were deliberately and savagely reduced to rubble as an act of reprisal for an attack which some Italian partisans made on the paratroopers. This section was really fascinating for me because we, we've talked a lot about how the nature of enemy combatants and civilians changes in a lot of the previous episodes. Maybe not so much the, the first episode um, talking about Murray Peden, but when we look at George Burling and we talk about Harry Fox, each of them have their own perspectives on the people that basically they're fighting around. And I found it really interesting how Farley Mowat admits that they're able to change and their perspectives are able to to come around and come full circle. And that's fascinating. And on the other hand, I think the refugees aspect is something that is not really touched upon in a lot of memoirs like this. Even talking about, you know, Burling, obviously that was more of an autobiography in, in that sense. And he would have been in the air, so he wouldn't have had experience with refugees. But Harry Fox doesn't really make too much of a mention of it. And I find that really fascinating. So I'm really glad that Farley Mowat chose to include the story about the refugees because it's really interesting to think about the significant effect this has on the the local populations and it's something that's not really focused on too much so i was really happy to read that this next section too is something that we've talked about quite a bit and i think this is more so in harry fox um, than anywhere else and maybe it's just a, a feeling um felt by the hasty peas but i'm sure that it resonates with a lot of the soldiers at the time this is when after taking sicily the hasty peas are given a time of relaxation, let's say. And uh, it's very interesting to hear the critiques from Farley on how they're treated. And I'm going to go through a couple pages on that. And then we're going to talk about a little bit of the conflict itself and uh, get into that. This starts on page 145 of the book. The order read, First Division will now proceed to a rest area where the troops will enjoy a period of relaxation and the rewards for a job well done. One hellishly hot morning in early August, we loaded ourselves aboard a convoy of open trucks and set off on a hundred mile trek to the southward. Late in the evening, we arrived, dust choked and dehydrated, at our destination a few miles from Gramichel, the scene of our first real action short weeks earlier. One look at the rest area was enough to give us pause. While the base troops, headquarters staffs, supply services, and those who seldom, if ever, heard a shot fired in anger, took over comfortable billets in the coastal regions of Catania and Syracuse, or in resort hotels at Regal Termina, the fighting soldiers of 1st Canadian Division found themselves banished to the desolate and dreary interior of the island. Our portion turned out to be a scorched and stony plateau, which distantly and tantalizingly overlooked the green plains of Catania, and from whose arid heights we could, with binoculars, just glimpse the far blue waters of the Mediterranean. Here, under an implacable sun, among scant thickets of bamboo and clumps of cactus, we were fated to remain for the balance of the month to enjoy our relaxation and rewards. It was not a matter of choice. Under pain of summary punishment, we were confined to the brigade area. No leaves of any sort were granted. All towns and cities, even dusty little Gremichel, which we ourselves had captured, were placed strictly out of bounds. 
We were forbidden to fraternize with Italian civilians. We were forbidden to supplement our issue rations either by barter or purchase. We were not even permitted to buy vino and were expected to rest content with an issue of one bottle of beer per man per week and one bottle of whiskey per officer per month. As if this was not bad enough, hardly had we settled into the bivouacs which we built ourselves out of bamboo, ground sheets and straw, when we were set upon by a horde of tormentors. Possibly in an attempt to justify their existence, non-combatant officers of every rank began to arrive in a steady stream of jeeps and staff cars and subjected us to interminable pointless persecutions, including detailed inspections of everything from carburetors to foreskins. When these busybodies grew fatigued from examining our latrines, cookhouses, underwear, first aid kits, etc., they demanded ceremonial troop inspections which required long hours of preparation, followed by equally long hours in parade formations under a blinding sun, while we waited for some VIP to make his brief appearance. During a single week, we were subjected to three such purgatories, once by General Montgomery, once by our divisional commander, and once by General McNaughton, commander-in-chief of the Canadian Army. Each took the opportunity to thank us on behalf of king and country for our achievements, but concrete demonstrations of gratitude were notable by their absence, both in our blistering purgatory in Sicily and at home in Canada. Although we were very short of reinforcements, the news from home told of a continuing invasion of overseas conscription by Mackenzie King's liberal government, of anti-war riots led by fascist sympathizers, of strikes by war workers for higher pay, and of the sacrifices being less than stoically endured by the civilian population which was having to submit to the horrors of sugar rationing. It seemed to us that instead of being rewarded for our victories, we were being forced to do penance. Nor was this simple paranoia. Division passed down to brigade, which passed down to us a training syllabus for the rest period, which had us up and hopping at 0600 hours, and which was effective six days a week. On the 7th, there was compulsory church parade, after which we were free to clean our kit and weapons. Apart from being exhausting, the training was often asinine. I remember with almost undiminished anger a patrol exercise in which every man and officer in the regiment had to engage, and which required that we who had clawed and fought our way across half of Sicily should spend 24 continuous hours clawing through the self-same mountains once again. When we finally had our first pay parade, we were given specially printed military lira, which were virtually worthless since we were denied the opportunity to spend them. They were used mainly in surreptitious games of poker, although all forms of gambling were also forbidden and could only be enjoyed under the blind eye of an obliging superior. The brass-hatted Mother Grundress of the staff, who so rigorously sought to deprive us of the pleasures fighting troops at rest might legitimately hope to enjoy, provided their own substitutes. They organized sports days for us, ah, the joys of the 100-yard dash, Twice we were taken in tightly guarded convoys to swim in the sea, and to top it all off, on one momentous occasion, we were entertained for two hours by a military band. To add wormwood and gall, we knew our situation was unique among the fighting soldiers in Sicily. Only the Canadian forces were treated like inmates of a reform school. The German army encouraged its troops to find whatever joy was to be had, even providing mobile brothels when local amenities proved inadequate. 
British and American troops spent generous leaves in Sicilian cities and coastal resorts, were free to scour the countryside for local food and drink, and were, in general, encouraged to make the most of any respite from the miserable business of killing and being killed. In the circumstances, it was inevitable that we would begin to feel a festering contempt for the pompous paper pushers of our behind-the-lines bureaucracy, which only discernible reason for existence seemed to be to make our lives a trial. One such was a pasty-faced, pot-bellied major from some arcane financial section who appeared every time we withdrew into reserve, but never came near when we were within artillery range of the enemy. He pursued us with dogged tenacity through Sicily and Italy for six months, demanding that we rectify a discrepancy in the officer's mess accounts, amounting to the horrendous sum of three pounds, nine shillings, and six pence. He would not accept my explanation, I was mess secretary during much of this period, that my predecessor had been blown to bits together with the account of books and the mess funds themselves when a landmine went off beneath his truck. That just won't do. Won't do at all, the major huffed. He should have been blown up by a two-ton bomb instead, I asked innocently. The major glared angrily. There should have been copies of the mess accounts kept in a safe place. The missing monies must be accounted for, or you will be held personally answerable to the Auditor General. He demanded that I institute a full-scale court of inquiry to trace the missing funds. What I actually did was lead him on a merry chase for months, until I got so sick of his face that I collected the equivalent of the missing sum and captured German marks and sent it off to him. In due course, I received his official receipt properly stamped and signed in quintuplicate. This next quick section is about prisoners of war, which is something that we've talked about a little bit um, in the Harry Fox episode and just in general before. And I want to just go into a quick couple pages about that before I get to some of the more personal and concluding uh, chapters here. What I'm about to read out happens uh, just before Farley's crew reaches Valganera. And this is on the top of a hill overlooking a German patrol. And they essentially take them out. But what I'm going to read for you is kind of the aftermath of that. Meanwhile, soldiers from the other trucks were desperately trying to bail out through a thickening curtain of bullets, grenades, and mortar bombs. Not many reached the dubious shelter of the roadside ditches, and most of those who did were wounded. As they and the few others who survived began making frantic efforts to surrender, the firing petered out, and soon little groups of our men began herding prisoners off the road and up the hill. Guarded by Corporal Hill's section with rifles at the ready, Amore and I descended to the road to gather intelligence. This consisted mostly of counting the dead and wounded, and of searching through the blood-soaked tunics for unit identifications, documents, and soldbuchs, the German version of our paybooks. But after a time, I could no longer stand the stench in sight and left Pat alone to the gory chore. It was not the dead that distressed me most. It was the German wounded. There were a great many of these, and most seemed to have been hard hit. We could do almost nothing for them. We had no medical supplies to spare or even any water. One of their medical orderlies was among the handful of uninjured prisoners, but he too was helpless, for he had neither drugs nor field dressings. One ghastly vignette from the shambles that still haunts me still. The driver of a truck hanging over his steering wheel and hiccuping great gouts of cherry pink foam through a smashed windscreen, to the accompaniment of a sound like a slush pumping sucking air, as his perforated lungs labored to expel his heart's own blood, in which he was slowly drowning. 
Shortly after a return to the company position, a subaltern, who shall be nameless, suggested that the best thing we could do for the wounded Germans was to put them out of their misery. When this was received with hostility by the rest of us, he tried to justify himself. God damn it, they'll only bleed to death or die of thirst. Surely to Christ it'll be kinder to put a bullet through their heads. That'll be enough of that. Alex, this is Alex Campbell, who had come up unseen behind us, was flushed and furious. There'll be no killing prisoners. Try anything like that and I'll see you court-martialed on a murder charge. The anomaly of hearing such sentiments voiced by a man who had just butchered 20 or 30 Germans did not strike me at the time. It does now. The line between brutal murder and heroic slaughter flickers and wavers and becomes invisible. It's interesting to see this line. We talked about it a little bit in Harry Fox and how he basically went up to a group of prisoners and was about to, you know, possibly execute them when he had to be stopped and taken out of the moment. And in that, it's more of an emotional reaction based on grief. But on the other hand, sometimes you see this out of compassion, which I think is what this this subaltern who shall remain nameless is trying to get at. And it's interesting that Farley indicates the line, right? The line between killing 20 or 30 Germans in the line of combat versus when the fighting's done, now you can't kill them and now they're prisoners. So it's interesting to see where that line is. And Alex Campbell is someone who was very much against that, but detested the Germans. So very curious to see the individual lines there. Now, I realize that this episode is probably going to end up going a little bit longer, and so I want to touch on more of the personal effects on Farley and some things that he notes uh, near the end of the book. And I'll talk about two sections of personal effects and then one last section on a battle. This is a letter he wrote home after watching uh, a friend die. It's hard for guys my age to grasp that nobody lives forever. Dying is just a word until you find out differently. That's trite, but horribly true. The first few times you are almost nicked, you take it for granted. You are naturally immortal. The next few times you begin to wonder. After that, you start looking over your shoulder to make sure old lady luck is still around. Then if you're still in one piece, you wonder when she's going to scram to parts unknown. A young guy named Swale came up to us three weeks ago, fresh out from Blighty, and before he really knew what in the hell it was all about, he ended up in a pile of perforated meat along with seven of his men. Why him? Why them? And when will it be you? That's the sort of question you ask yourself. This next part is him talking about uh, shell shock or battle fatigue and all the different terms they used for it at the time. He seems to take a literary exaggeration of this and call it the worm that never dies uh, to some critique from from reviewers. But we're going to read two pages on his views on um, shell shock at the time. Securing the moral bridgehead brought us no respite. Until December 19th, we remained in action, first defending what we had taken, then breaking out in an attempt to drive the paratroopers back towards the ramparts of Ortona, which we could now see encrusting a blunt promontory jutting into the leaden waters of the Adriatic. Ambulance jeeps were perpetually on the move, weaving their way along cratered tracks back and forth across the devastated valley through a desultory fall of shells. For the most part, they were laden with men who could have served as illustrations for a macabre catalog of the infinite varieties of mutilation. 
But for the first time since we had gone to war, they had also carried casualties who bore no visible wounds. These were the victims of what was officially termed battle fatigue. Shell shock, they called it in the First World War. Both descriptions were evasive euphemisms. The military mind will not, perhaps, does not dare admit that there comes a time to every fighting man, unless death or bloody ruination of the flesh forestalls it, when the worm, not steel or flame, becomes his nemesis. My father had warned me of this in a letter I received just before we left Castropignano for the Adriatic sector. It was a letter so unlike his usual robust and cheerful chronicles of trivia at home that I can believe it was dictated by the Celtic prescience which he claimed as a part of his inheritance. Keep it in mind during that the days ahead that the war does inexplicable things to people and no man can guess how it is going to affect him until he has had a really stiff dose of it. The most unfortunate ones after any war are not those with missing limbs. They are the ones who have had their spiritual feet knocked out from under them. The beer halls and gutters are still full of such poor bastards from my war, and nobody understands or cares what happened to them. I remember two striking examples from my old company in the 4th Battalion. Both damn fine fellows, yet both committed suicide in the line. They did not shoot themselves. They let the Germans do it because they had reached the end of the tether. But they never knew what was the matter with them. That they had become empty husks, were spiritually depleted, were burned out. The part that I'm going to read you now is the last section here, and it's the last few pages of the book. And while I desperately want to read more, I also am cognizant of the fact that I am going well above the time I had allocated for myself. And so I want to read you this last uh, couple pages. And with the the pretext of uh, Alex Campbell, Major Alex Campbell at this point, had given a poem to Farley Mowat, um, basically admitting that he was very afraid and Farley came to the realization that despite his being a great hulk of a man that he also had what he calls the worm inside of him that he was also going through a lot of post-traumatic stress and it's really interesting to hear him describe the last part of the book here dawn came at last and it was christmas day and at 0700 hours, Kennedy ordered Abel Company to attack and destroy a force of paratroopers that had infiltrated during the night between Abel and Baker. Kennedy himself went forward to give Alex his instructions, and this time he did not take me with him. I tried to follow the course of the action through the earphones of the radio set connecting us with Abel Company, but Abel's set went off the air, and I knew little of what was happening until half an hour later, the walking wounded began to straggle into our cellar. One of the first was a sergeant who was suffering from a deep gash in one thigh. Shakily, he accepted a cigarette, then told me what he had seen. Alex had sent what was left of Seven Platoon to launch the initial attack, and Seven had almost immediately been caught by enfilading fire from three machine guns, with the loss of several killed and wounded. The logical course would then have been for Alex to send one of the other platoons to outflank these guns, something that was successfully done later in the day. But he did not choose to do this. Instead, he did the unexpected and the inexplicable. Seizing a Tommy gun, he levered his great bulk to its full height, gave an inarticulate bellow, and charged straight at the enemy. He could have gone no more than three or four paces before he was riddled by scores of bullets. Crashing into the mud like a falling colossus, he lay there, his body jerking spasmodically, until the dead flesh at last lay still. During the timeless interval, both his own men and the Germans were so stunned by his action that not a further shot was fired by either side. It was the bravest goddamn thing I ever saw, and the craziest. 
The sergeant ground out his cigarette and looked into my face with puzzled eyes. Crazy as hell, but Jesus, what a man. The blanket that screened the shattered cellar door was thrust aside and a party of stretcher bearers pushed in amongst us. Al Park lay on one of the stretchers. He was alive, though barely so, unconscious with a bullet in his head. As I looked down at his faded, empty face under its crown of crimson bandages, I began to weep. I wonder now, were my tears for Alex and Al and all the others who had gone and who were yet to go? Or was I weeping for myself and those who would remain? War is, is an act of absolute lunacy. Not just partial lunacy, but absolute lunacy. And it may be the most distinguishing feature of the human species as an animal, that we are subject to this terrible, terrible kind of lunacy. From which the ultimate conclusion that I drew, and I have retained it, is that it is probably the symptom or symbol or diagnostic indication of the way we are going to end. After his service on the front lines of Italy, Mowat was eventually transferred to an intelligence unit at battalion and brigade headquarters, respectively, and joined the rest of the unit in Europe by 1945. By the end of the war, Mowat had been promoted to captain and was even considered for promotion to major, which he declined. His awards at the end of the war are as follows. The 1939-45 Service Star, the Italy Star, the France and Germany Star, the Defense Medal, the Canadian Volunteer Service Medal, and the War Medal 1939-1945. What's interesting is you pair this with his civilian medals by the end of his life, and I just find it so striking. Officer of the Order of Canada, 1981, Canadian Centennial Medal, 1967, the Queen Elizabeth II Silver Jubilee Medal, 1977, the 125th Anniversary of the Confederation of Canada Medal, 1992, the Queen Elizabeth II Golden Jubilee Medal, 2002, and the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal, 2012. Farley Mowat's accounts of his time during the Second World War is nothing short of extraordinary. The book combines the talents of one of the most proficient literary figures in Canadian history with a thrilling account of war. But what is most striking about the book, and perhaps unique about Farley Mowat himself, is his subsequent introspection following his time during the war. For all intents and purposes, Farley's retreat into the Canadian North and his literary career that followed based on his passion for environmentalism were directly caused by his loss of faith in humanity. The things he had seen in the war had caused him to essentially give up on human beings entirely. In a Maclean's interview from 1981, Farley's asked the following, Are you still as pessimistic about mankind as you once were? He replies, I am mellowly pessimistic. I see no future for the human race except a plunge over the top and down, but I don't find that terribly depressing because I don't consider the human race as absolute or ultimate in creation. It never has been, never will be. We're peaking with incredible velocity like a rocket and will come down like one. It doesn't bother me very much. What makes life livable for me is to keep telling myself that I am an animal. That's where I belong. I disassociate myself from the human connection in the usual sense. Most human beings think of the human species as an absolute entity that is immortal. I refuse to accept that. That way lies madness. I think of myself as part of the other huge section of animal creation. And on that pillow, I can rest my weary head and preserve my sanity.
Critics of Farley Mote's book in No Bird Sang accuse him of exaggeration with regards to German force sizes and therefore somehow placing them in a better light. Barrett and Greenhouse's review is possibly most notable for this, placing Mowat's earlier work in comparison with his earlier title, The Regiment, which was written in 1955 about the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment in the Second World War. Quote, Unfortunately, years of popular moralizing about whales, wolves, peculiar dogs, and owls has taken the cutting edge off of his prose. There's an inevitable price to be paid for kitsch, as well as profit to be turned, and the slick superficiality of Moet's current writing contrasts poorly with the crisp, powerful, lower-keyed, and therefore more moving style of the regiment. Indeed, Moet's reputation was forever tainted by early accusations of falsifying facts, to which the author did himself no favors by continuing throughout his career to confirm that he did exaggerate certain elements of his works to draw wider attention to them. I'm not sure, however, that this reputation for falsifying some information applies here. While certainly his estimations of German forces may have been inaccurate in some places, I return to thinking about a quote from earlier in the episode, I will take any liberty I want with the facts, so long as I don't trespass on the truth. I suppose this is somewhat a play on the notoriously misreferenced quote which follows that you should never let the truth get in the way of a good story. While Moat himself has indicated that he never could write an adult novel or much of a novel in any way, he is able to masterfully choose whether to emphasize or diminish certain parts of his stories in such a way that his personal messages within the stories are clear. This is why I have a difficult time criticizing the book in terms of pinpoint historical accuracy with regards to unit numbers or such things as I'm not sure that it particularly matters. If this autobiography was written by anybody else or any other veteran who did not have a career in literature, I'm quite certain that numerical and statistical errors would not be nearly as important. I think that in these past few episodes, I've attempted to stress the importance of these autobiographies more within regards to the unique perspectives that they offer on war and conflict, as opposed to being quote unquote facts. Truth is often a very subjective thing, depending on the perspective that it is told from. And I'm reminded of that no more than today when we look at the writing of Farley Mowat. Thank you for sticking around for such a long episode today. I hope it was enjoyable. I hope you liked the things that I included. And please do yourself a favor and pick up a copy of And No Bird Sang, as well as The Regiment. I think both of them are striking and they're really the only, you know, books on military that Farley Mowat wrote. Most of his other collections are about environmentalism in some way, which are equally amazing. Um, but these are very unique, I think, in their perspectives. And he said at one point that he said all he has to say about war. This has been another longer episode today, but I'm happy to have done so, as I feel like there was a lot to get through with Farley Mowat and his story in his book, And No Bird Sang. I hope you enjoyed it. Please check out our other episodes of Witnesses to History and our countless episodes on Juno Beach and beyond. We should have another episode uh, of Witnesses to History coming out this month and perhaps an episode of Juno Beach and beyond. So stick around for those. Until then, thank you very much for tuning in and we will talk to you next time. Bye bye.